This is a piece called uh, Cambridge 1969. I pledge allegiance. I pledge allegiance. To the band. It may perhaps discourage you, and not under your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, but you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now to go for it. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys are 11. Welcome to Movies That Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald, and I'm welcoming back to the show tonight a friend of mine who joined me on the Tommy episode with The Who. Here, he's here tonight to discuss John Lennon and Yoko Ono's new Netflix documentary called Above Us Only Sky. So please welcome back to the show tonight, Michael Bagford. Hi, Mike. Welcome back. Hey, Josh. How's it going? It's going good. We're battling the heat right now, the early summer May heat. I know. I'm just sitting out in the heat, and it feels like a ran for like two miles or something it's it's oh, unbelievable it's pretty crazy and it's we went from at least here from where i am we went from having about 30 degrees every single day and suddenly it was 70 so there was we really didn't have a spring i know it's it's like that in ohio all the time it's, <laughs> it's either really cold or really hot or really humid or really stormy or really clear it's just <laughs> sometimes all, all in the same day yeah thanks for joining me tonight i'm, I'm glad we were able to to reconnect because we've been talking about doing a new episode for a while we were finally able to kind of decide on a movie that we wanted to both discuss there were a few contenders and this is the one we picked yeah i think it's a really good choice too we're both big beatles fans and mm -hmm. i think we can handle the episode pretty well so i thought it'd be a good uh, episode to do Absolutely. And and John Lennon is, is such a towering personality. I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about him and, and his, oh, his yeah. art and his legacy. Yeah, we might have some positives and we might both have some negatives. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be a, a pretty even amount of both. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be pretty fair. I don't think it's going to ear towards the side of everything that John does is great or everything that John does sucks. I think it's going to be yeah, it's going to be pretty fair. And we're also going to be uh, talking about Yoko Ono. Yes. She is even arguably more controversial than John is. So, Oh, yeah. Let's chat about the Beatles themselves. I know we're, we're going to focus today mostly on John and Yoko, but I think it would probably be doing a disservice to them if we didn't at least discuss the Beatles a little bit beforehand and your history with the Beatles and when and where, I guess, did you first discover the Beatles? I got pretty into the Beatles uh, pretty early on. It's about the same time I kind of got into Pink Floyd, which was... I was about like three or four at that time. About when I was five, my parents got the uh, White Album on double cassette. I listened to it, and I really enjoyed it. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. I'd say it's in my top five. After that, um, they also got a cassette of the 1962 to 1966 Red Album. And that, that's the one I, I grew it, up on. Did you grow up on both the Red and, and the Blue albums? Yes. With the Blue Album, we only had we had the record, but we only had the first one. The second one had gotten lost. And so I didn't hear any of the second record until I kind of already knew the albums. <laughs> so that was kind of a weird thing. That's a weird thing about some album collections. Like there'll sometimes be an album missing or you'll get one later on. It's, it's a little bit weird. Yeah, that was with me with the White Album is I only had the second record. I didn't know there really was a first album until much later. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and it, the second album is the weird one with Revolution 9 and Helter Skelter and all that. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that second album of the White Album. I know most people, it's, it's always the first over the second. But I mean, I like both pretty much equal. I do too. And actually, Revolution Number Nine is not my least favorite on that album. Mine neither. I actually really appreciate it. I really enjoy Revolution Nine. I'm surprised the art student hasn't came up with like a Revolution Number Nine film or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, there's there's a really cool YouTube video. I'll have to link it to the show notes. It's like some college orchestra where the conductor made a like a classical arrangement of Revolution Nine, and it's pretty accurate to the original recording <laughs> it's pretty wild that sounds pretty cool so how did you get into the Beatles it's probably not much of a story that hasn't been told before but I, I they were my first band when I was probably four or five I took to all the early love ballads and you know the she loves you and please please me stuff 
as I grew older, I got into the deeper stuff. And I think Abbey Road was the other one that I that I grew up listening to all the time. I had some trouble when I was five getting into that one because it was a little bit more mature with the long medley and on the second side and things like Come Together and I Want You. I was a little too young to get it, but finally later I went back and listened to it with a more mature ear and then I was like, oh, I see what I see what all the fuss is now. It's not my favorite Beatles album now, but it's the one that was my gateway into how rich their catalog really was. And then I got really, really into Paul's solo stuff, almost more so than I got into the Beatles themselves. Wings was, was also a mainstay in our house. It actually kind of took me a while to get into Paul McCartney's solo career. Really? I mean, now it's like, I listen to Paul McCartney solo, then I actually do the Beatles most of the time. When I started listening to Beatles, I was more of a John Lennon guy because I thought, man, all the songs he does, I really like for the most part. And I mean, some of the Paul stuff, I kind of found sappy at the time. <laughs> yeah. So after getting into everything by the Beatles, I started kind of going more into the solo career. And I kind of started listening to John stuff. First I heard of John was the uh, John Lennon collection. That's what I had to. That was a good collection. Yeah, it was. It did take me a while to kind of get used to it because it, the production's a lot more reverby and more Phil mm. Spector-ish. Yeah, and it's that's a little true. bit different from what the Beatles did, and it, it kind of took a while to get used to. It's more singer-songwriter-ish, what John was doing in the Beatles, and it's, it was a little bit of a departure from what he was mm-hmm. doing. And I found it very angsty, which was something very that much I so. didn't... Yeah, which is why I think I liked Paul's stuff a little bit more, um, maybe even now, in a way. It, it's so angsty as to be almost exhausting at times. <laughs> I think personalities reflect in who their favorite Beatles tend to be in people. And I got less angsty onwards, and I kind of started getting more into Paul stuff, and Ram is like one of my favorite albums by anybody. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It'd definitely be in my top 10 Beatles related albums. I think it'd have to put it up there too for me. I think Ram is special in that we don't hear the songs on the radio every 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that really helps. It does. <laughs> that helps for a lot of things. So it's funny that like we hear the Beatles all the time and I'm still not really sick of the Beatles. I'm kind of a little bit sick of some of the singles a little bit, but yeah, albums I can still really get into. I mean, I can still listen to the White Album and enjoy every track. Uh, maybe Wild Honey Pie is a little... <laughs> uh, it's a to- It's just a throwaway. But I, I even like the little disjointed weird stuff on that album. I, 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 I dig just for what they are. <laughs> it's like a, yeah, it's like really a breather. There's definitely some very heavy moments on there. There's stuff that freaked me out when I was a kid. Oh, my God. Me too. Helter Skelter terrified me. Yeah, especially like when Ringo's yelling at the end, man. That kind of scared the hell out of me. Me too. That train noise and long, long, long scared the hell out of me too for some reason. You know, it's funny because I, I, <laughs> I think because Helter Skelter scared me so much, I never really listened to Long, Long, Long because I turned the album off. Like as Helter Skelter started. So I didn't even really be familiarize myself with that one until much later. And that's actually one of my favorite George songs now. Yeah, that's one of my favorites too. Oh, here's a big question. Revolution, the single version or Revolution 1? Uh, Revolution 1 for me. I, I'm with you. And I think we're in the minority. I bet we are. The slow version is the one I heard first. So that's the one I'm kind of most familiar with. And when I heard that fast version, it's... It was just kind of a little off for me or a little bit jarring. It's something. It's just, I just don't register with that version as I do the slower one. I agree. And I think the slower one is, is produced a lot better. The single version is really muddy. It's almost too distorted to be enjoyable. And I just don't think it's very well produced. Yeah, I don't think it's very well produced either. And it kind of sounds a lot like some of John's solo material coming up here. Yeah. Like cold turkey. But I really like cold turkey, though. Even though it is kind of, it's a little abrasive, I really enjoy it, though. I know Craig mm-hmm. Smith's going to think that's really vile, that <laughs> I really like that song. I'm fine with it. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's just, that's another song, much like Helter Skelter, that I couldn't listen to when I was a kid. It terrified me with the wailing at the end. Yeah. That was that was a little too freaky for me. It's kind of freaky for me now. Still. <laughs> that's true. So, yeah, I have a long, lifelong history with the Beatles. I saw that you recently listened to All Things Must Pass. Yeah, I did. I listened to that last night, actually. He kept a lot of those songs while he was still with the Beatles, and it was like a big release when he uh, 
release that. Triple album. Now, I wish he wouldn't have done the Apple Jam. But at least... I like one track on it. Out of the Blue is pretty good. It actually goes into some nice jam territory. Everything else is kind of monotonous bullshit, yeah. in my opinion, that Th- album. Thanks for the pepperoni. Apple Jam. Where in the hell they come up with that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> at least he didn't put those jams like in the middle of the album proper, like... In between My Sweet Lord and Is It a Pity, he didn't put one of those jam songs in there. Yeah, having Wawa and then It's Johnny's Birthday and then Hear Me Lord or something like that. Yeah, I'm probably never going to listen to that particular album in that collection. Now I will listen to the the other two, though. Are you familiar with the rest of his solo output, of Harrison's solo output? Yeah, I am. He did release some good stuff after All Things Must Pass, but it kind of went down quality-wise until Cloud Nine came out in 1987 which that's the album i like that is a good one i've maybe only heard it once or twice but it's just funny how he had like this explosion of creativity right towards the end of the beatles and then he seemed to just lose his inspiration yeah it's funny how things work it's like that with the beatles too because it kind of became less of, a, of an event as it went down towards in the 70s because it was like a pretty big deal when all four of Four of them came out with solo albums in 1970. It was like kind of an event still, and yeah. everybody was excited to get a Paul album or a John album or a George album or even the Ringo album. And then, kind of by, by 1975, like most people were just like, oh, I'll probably stick with Paul. And then everybody out, John was releasing like crap like rock and roll, and George had the extra texture album where there's probably a good EP hidden in somewhere. And <laughs> yeah. Ringo was just pretty much done making good albums at that point. Yeah, he really only had one album that probably was a keeper across yeah, the board. Yeah, that's the Ringo album. Yeah. That's kind of almost a hidden Beatles album, too, because all true. four of them play on it. Not all together at the same time, but... But they all contributed in some way, which is pretty awesome. Leave it to, to the Ringo album to be the Beatles reunion album. Yeah. He was kind of always the one that connected all four Beatles. He was kind of the one that everybody got along with because yeah. it seemed like George liked Paul in the early days because they were kind of friends. And then when George got into the group, it's kind of like Paul kind of edged George away a bit and became more of his boss. George worked with Ringo still and John in the 70s, so never really saw him working with Paul all that much. I think Paul's ego got in the way of a lot of things, unfortunately. Yeah, that's kind of what broke up the Beatles, in my opinion, a little bit. No, I thought it was Yoko. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Everybody says Yoko does that, and I think we're going to kind of get into that as we go along. And that kind of irritates me because everyone says, like, oh, Yoko broke up the band. And I think that's complete bullshit. I agree with you. I think it's bullshit, too. Brian Epstein dying of a drug overdose kind of broke him up because... Mm. He was kind of the one that kind of held them together. And then once he was gone, they didn't really have direction at that point. They were releasing Magical Mystery Tour, and they didn't really know where to go management-wise. So they thought they would manage themselves and got into the Apple Records thing, which caused more problems. And Brian was pretty much doing that work before they got into there. And then it's just like four people with no business sense trying to run a whole entire company it's not gonna work it was a recipe for disaster right from the start yeah not a good move the main event here is is john lennon so you said john lennon for a while was your favorite solo output is that accurate that's not really accurate that's kind of the one i started listening to just kind of outside the beatles gotcha i kind of got both in the john and paul solo career after kind of getting used to everything that the Beatles had done. It actually kind of took me a while to get into any solo Lennon. Paul kind of actually took a while, too. But his was a little easier to get into, and I think that's probably true for most people. And you would think John would be have a little more commercial sense, but I think at that point he kind of just wanted to do what he wanted to do, which I, I think it was a good move on his part. I just don't think he was going to have his own ram or have his own band on the run he was just kind of do his own thing and he wanted to do that for quite a while he had a lot of a lot of baggage that he had to clear out and he wanted to do it musically because that's really the only way he knew how to express himself and he couldn't really do that within the confines of the beatles yeah that's true well people always say that paul made it official that the beatles broke up when he put out the mccartney album in early 1970 but I mean, John Lennon with Yoko, he put out a couple albums with her. He put out some singles like Cold Turkey was released when the Beatles were still together. 
Uh, yep, and piece of chance was so was released when the Beatles were still together. Actually, had a Linda McCartney credit on it. Did it really? I did not know that. Yeah, it did. It was a favor because uh, McCartney helped uh, John Lennon out with the bout of John and Yoko, and that was his John's way of giving thanks to Paul on a give piece of chance, even though Paul had nothing to do with that song. Interesting. Wow. I don't think it's entirely fair either to say that Paul made the first move because John had really been doing it for a while. But I think he made it pretty clear as early as 1968 that he was kind of over them. Yeah, he kind of did that with the songwriting a little bit, too, in the Beatles, because it seemed like he he had writer's block in 1969 because there's some not some good stuff on Let It Be. Dig a Pony is pretty bad <laughs> yeah. songwriting. Across the Universe came from 1968. And that was a very prolific year for him. Yeah, 1968, uh, like some of my favorite John stuff came from that year. And it's it's funny because 1969 hits and it's like, what am I going to come up with? Yeah, he kind of hit a wall right there. That's when he started that whole primal scream thing, that therapy where involves just like screaming and crying and, and being emotional. And then he, he took that and channeled it into a songwriting and then put out his Plastic Ono Band album. Yeah, and that's a very that's a very stark album. And a lot of the songwriting on that is very different from what he was coming up with in the Beatles because it seemed like within the Beatles, it was more for everybody that was listening to it. And then once you got into Plastic Ono Band and Cold Turkey, material it was very personal very singer songwriterish i would argue maybe that john was really the only beetle that truly was interested in making music for himself rather than making it for an audience do you know what i mean by that yeah i know what you mean by that they probably all make music for themselves i mean it's not like well i don't enjoy this i'm gonna make it for everybody i mean right right right. Mm -hmm. but paul's also thinking well there's an audience and I'm going to make it for an audience, too, as well as myself. It's going to be something I like, and then everybody else likes. Where John's like, I like this. You may not, but if you want to come in for the ride, you're welcome. Yeah, Paul's a showman and wants to be loved by everyone. Where John, he's introspective. He, he wants to express himself. That's how he knows how to express himself. Yeah, and Paul's more extroverted, and John's more of the introvert. Yep. Did you listen to most of his albums recently, like in preparation of this? I have to admit, I didn't listen to all of them. I listened to a few of them. I didn't listen to the first two John and Yoko albums. I didn't think there was really any need. (laughs) This is a piece called Cambridge 1969. Oh, my God. Jeez. File. I want to put that as my alarm to wake me up every morning, the sound of Yoko, <laughs> like as she, as she starts the beginning of that piece, I want that to wake me up every single morning so that I know I get out of bed at the right time. So you want to have an awful day when you wake up. <laughs> you want to be more in a or less. Wake up. <laughs> ever made it through all 26 minutes of that i think i've made like two minutes and i had to stop i've never sat and listened to the whole thing i've like fast forwarded it to different parts to see if there you know if anything happens that isn't that there's some percussion and piano yeah and some sax towards the end yeah percussion and sax yeah that's not even the full piece i think the full piece was almost 40 minutes long they couldn't fit it on an album side so they just faded it out imagine being in the audience Uh, imagine leaving (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Have you ever heard Two Virgins? I've heard snippets of Two Virgins, but I haven't really gotten too far with that album either. Yeah. I own Two Virgins, (laughs) and I've never pulled it off the shelf. Really? Uh That's probably how it is with most people. Yeah, I would would hope so. You know, they could have put out a Revolution Number 9 type album. It's too lo-fi for it to be interesting. You can tell that they made it on like a crappy tape recorder. Yeah, same with uh, Life of the Lions as well. Oh, God, yes. Probably same with the Wedding Album as well. <laughs> Have you heard the Wedding Album? John. Yoko? John. Fortunately, I haven't. They're reissuing it. I think they're putting out like a super expanded edition of that. So save your pennies. Yeah, I, I just watched the unboxing 
video and I was satisfied with just <laughs> having that be my experience with the album. So yeah, those albums were in the late 60s. Like Two Virgins was 68, even before the White Album came out. Yeah, and the, the distributor in the U.S. thought they were going to sell millions of that as well because it was a Beatles solo album. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. They must have not actually listened to the album before they shipped it out. Or even looked at the album cover. I know, and it had to be in a brown bag as well. Yeah. John and Yoko had met in an interesting way. Was it 66 or 67? It was late 66. Yeah, it's covered in the movie. It was an art exhibition. I think it was in New York City that John had went to, and she had this display. It was a ladder leading up to a magnifying glass that was hanging off of the ceiling and the whole concept of the piece was go up the ladder, take the magnifying glass and look to see what it says on the ceiling in really tiny letters. And what she had written on there was the word yes. And I guess John thought that was just like a very welcoming thing. And so he was won over by that and went and met her. And I guess the rest is history. It took a while for them to actually become a couple. Mm -hmm. I mean, Cynthia, John's first wife, they kind of asked about how he felt about the exhibition. And they thought, oh, it's kind of hokey and she's out there and (laughs) I don't think I'm going to get involved in this exhibition thing. And then after a while, he was reading her book that she did back in 1964 called Grapefruit. I own that book. (laughs) That's a fascinating book. It's so weird. It seems like it'd be a pretty interesting book. Now, have you owned any of John Lennon's poetry books? Is it similar to that one? I actually, I haven't seen any of his poetry books, no, like in his own right. I know they're also very like whimsical and quirky. But I guess you have to be a real John Lennon fan to really like those or I'm not really interested in those poetry books i'm not so much either i guess we could talk yoko a little bit now she was a pretty well-established conceptual artist for for many years before john entered the picture she was a disciple of john cage in the early 60s after she went to art school and did she go to art school that might be that might not be correct but she relocated to new york city to join in the art scene in the like the late 50s and she was taken under the wing by John Cage, who was a very renowned avant-garde classical composer, and they did a lot of work together. And that's kind of where she started her caterwauling vocals, working with him and some of his pieces that he composed. His most famous piece is called 433. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I'm familiar with that one. I think that's the only piece I'm familiar with. Yeah, for the listeners who might not know it, what it is is it's for an orchestra, and it's literally four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, a full page of rest. But you have to get into playing position, and then after the four minutes and 33, you put your instruments down and bow for the applause (laughs) 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 he would like build musical instruments out of bicycles and bird cages and all kinds of crazy things like that they were a good matchup it sounds like it she was married too before john her first husband i believe was american let me double double check on actually in japan the second husband she had was tony cox that's it okay i forgot that she had a husband before Tony Cox, that she had two husbands before John. Yep. And with Tony Cox is who she had her daughter Kyoko with. Yep, that's correct. I can't think of her first husband right away, though. I'd have to look that up. She also did a cut piece. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. The Maisel brothers, who are two famous documentarians, they directed Gimme Shelter and Grey Gardens. When they were first starting, they directed the short film of Yoko's cut piece. I think it was from 63 or 64. And what she does is she has this dress on and she sits in the middle of the stage and she invites people from the audience one by one to come up to the stage with a pair of scissors and cut a piece of the clothes that she's wearing to the point where she's basically in her underwear on stage. And she's just completely frozen and stone-faced while they do this. And it's, I guess, a commentary on watching beauty deteriorate and how it's all phony and that kind of thing. Yep, I think she also had a film, I think it was like called Bottoms, and it was 365 asses, pretty much. (laughs) Sorry, I missed that one. (laughs) I don't know what that's a commentary on. Yeah. Did you listen to any of her albums? I did. Um, I listened to Approximate Infinite Universe. Universe, and oh, I think yeah. that's a really good album. That is a really good album. And listeners, don't be afraid that it's a Yoko album because it's really, the songwriting is very well done. And she doesn't scream on it. She legitimately sings and it's not terrible. And what's the name of the group that plays with her? I can't remember the, the it's, uh, Elephant's Memory. Elephant's Memory, that's right. And they, they have a lot of funky beats and good musicianship. So I also highly recommend it. Yep. John Lennon's involved heavily on the album, too. He plays a lot of guitar. He helped uh, Yoko produce it. Mm-hmm. I used to be kind of one of these guys, like when I used to listen to John Lennon's solo albums, and if I'd listen to Double Fantasy, I'm ashamed to say it, I'd kind of skip <laughs> Yoko's tracks yeah. on that album. I re-listened to uh, Double Fantasy recently as well, and there's some really great Yoko tracks on there. There's a couple of not-so-good Yoko tracks. I don't really like 
kiss, 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 kiss me, John. Kiss, 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 kiss me, John. Pat Francis's uh, favorite song. He loves that one. Although I he have to say your rendition is a little bit better than his. Really? <laughs> yes. You Take make a better Pat. Yoko. <laughs> I kind of dig that song because it's kind of a fun, catchy little thing. It's dumb, but I find it catchy. It it's catchy. Um, little hokey for my taste. I prefer uh, Give Me Something and I'm Moving On. And yeah, those are great beautiful songs. Beautiful Voice and Every Man Has a Woman Who Loves Him and mm-hmm. Hard Times Are Over on that album. Yeah. Yes, I'm Your Angel is not very good. And I think it's uh, it's kind of ripping off making Whoopi from what I've heard. And that's probably a good reason I don't like that song. It's just kind of too vaudevillian. John had a couple of clunkers on that album as well. I don't really like Dear Yoko on that. I don't care for that one either. That one gets obnoxious, actually. Yeah, and this might offend some people, but I don't like just like starting over. I think it's too mm-hmm. Elvisy. There's some rock and roll oldie stuff I'm fine with, and some of it kind of just gets on my nerves. And I think John kind of did a little bit too much of that, especially yeah. with the rock and roll album, right. which is Alpha's proper solo albums. I would say that's my least favorite. Yeah, I don't even really count that one because it's just covers. I'm not that interested in listening to it ever again. Yeah, I listened to it a couple of years ago for my album of the day that I do on Twitter, and I don't think I'm ever going to listen to the album in full ever again i might listen yeah. to standby for you but that's going to be about it i would actually personally put yoko maybe a notch above john in the solo output department because i reach out for her albums more than i reach out for his to be honest with you while they're an acquired taste i think that there's more interesting things to discover on them i think they're more adventurous like i said with john his angst kind of gets a little bit too much for me at times yeah i kind of feel the same way too and i mean some of the production on john's album of never really been a big fan of but don't yeah. really like the phil specterization of them where it's like tons and tons of echo and mm-hmm. just kind of too in your face i think do you have a top three lennon songs yes i do i have a top three women songs i think my third would be i just thought of this today as well so i'm kind of trying to get the wheels watching the wheels <laughs> go I think number three would be Nobody Told Me. I think that's a really good song. I think it should have been on the Double Fantasy album. I think it might have been recorded after they were playing to release it, so Mm -hmm. it wasn't released on there, but I've always really liked that song. Number two would be Isolation. I really enjoyed listening to the song. I know Roger Waters from Pink Floyd has said this is one of his favorite songs of all time. I can really wow. definitely see the Pink Floyd influence in that song, just the way the instrumentation is. And I could mm-hmm. see Roger Waters easily doing that song. People say we got it made. And my number one, it would be number nine, Dream. I wish he would have done more stuff like this in his solo career. I really like the production on this one. And Walls and Bridges, I think, is a really, really good John Lennon solo album. I know maybe John didn't really want to do that for most of his solo material, but I just think it really, really works well. I'm going to start with my number one because I have the same number one. Number Nine Dream is my favorite John Lennon song as well. Good choice. I've always loved that song. That was the first John Lennon song I fell in love with when I was a kid. It's very mystical and atmospheric and I didn't really understand. I still don't really understand what it's about or what it's trying to say, but it takes me to a, a place that none of his other songs really do. I feel the same way 
too on that one. Have you ever heard REM's version of it? Yes, I have. And I, I actually like that version as well. Yeah, I do too. My number two is actually off the same album and it's Whatever Gets You Through the Night. It's do That's a really good choice Whatever gets you through the night. Elton John and him had that bet where Elton was convinced it was going to go to number one and John thought he was crazy. So he said, if it ends up going to number one, you're going to go on stage and perform with me. And it went to number one. And so John, you know, held his side of the bargain and performed with Elton John. Yep. And that was like one of his last performances in public, pretty much. Yeah. My number three is Instant Karma, which was a single only. I think it was, was it between Plastic Ono Band and Imagine? Nope. It was actually before Plastic Ono Band came out. I think it came out in february of 1977 he was officially oh, still with the beatles he himself was out of the beatles at that point i didn't realize it was that early that's one where the phil specter sound i think really works it gives it a lot of oomph a lot of power yep and there's a version out there on youtube where it doesn't have that production and you can hear a lot of bum bass notes and really that. yeah so i think the production kind of helped it a bit kind of cover up some of those mistakes yeah so that was a good move my top three and my favorite album is walls and bridges my favorite album would be imagine feel mm -hmm. like we'll be talking about that here soon yeah we can actually that can be our segue imagine i don't want to do stuff yeah do you have a top three yoko songs yeah we can do a top three um, my number three would be uh mrs lennon mrs lennon I was kind of trying to pick out singles of the day last year. I do this thing on Twitter where I'll either pick an album of the day, which I'm doing this year, and I do a single a day, which I did last year. Uh -huh. I was kind of just trying to pick up something a little bit interesting. I figured I'd see what type of singles Yoko had, and I listened to this one, and I really like the kind of dark, melancholy atmosphere in the song. My number two, it would be Walking on Thin Ice. Uh, yes. Now, I find this to be a jam. It was uh, one of the last songs that John Lennon worked on, sadly. He has a lot of prominent guitar work on there. Wish he would have done more within his career. There's an excellent backing band on this. Tony Levin is on bass, and he later was the basis for King Crimson. And you also have uh, Earl Slick on guitar, who uh, had previously worked with David Bowie. And you had a guy named Andy Newmark, which I don't really hear that name often, but he's really good good on those double fantasy milk and honey tracks i mean john lennon and yoko had a really good backing band in 1980 it's a shame that john's assassination had happened because that would have been a really good tour lineup for john and yoko because they were planning to do a tour for that album oh my god can you imagine no pun intended <laughs> Um, my number one Yoko song would be uh, Death of Samantha, and I would pick the uh, uh, version that's on Yes, I'm a Witch, and this oh, is the okay. version that's done with instrumentation by uh, Stephen Wilson and uh, Porcupine Tree. People say I'm cool. Such a 
smooth and clear without a trace of tears. One of the first songs that made me realize that, man, Yoko Ono can do some really great stuff. I mean, it's just a very beautiful, moving track. I think it works better than the original that Yoko did on Approximately Infinite Universe. Even though I like that version, I just prefer the Stephen Wilson version. Maybe it's because I'm just a huge Stephen Wilson fan. He can kind of get me into anything. He got me into ABBA, actually. Oh, yeah, the day before you came. Yep, and I had suggested that song for you on your Rock Solid Show episode that you did on ABBA. That's right, and we played it. That is a, a masterpiece. Yeah, you don't really hear a lot of artists, you know, say that Yoko Ono is a musical influence. Yeah, it kind of comes up more now. I mean, I was talking about those Yes, I'm a Witch albums that Yoko Ono came out with in the mid-2000s. I mean, there's contributions from, you know, Stephen Wilson and the Flaming Lips doing their own version of a Yoko song. And that's kind of stuff comes out more a little bit now. I think just people are kind of starting to realize that, you know, Yoko Ono has some good stuff. Yeah. And I know that she's been very influential in punk and noise rock, like Sonic Youth credit her as a big influence. A lot of her, like, especially her noisier stuff, like her Plastic Ono Band album was considered very proto-punk and it's loud and screamy kind of thing. And a lot of alt bands and grunge bands and punk bands really point to her as a groundbreaker in that regard which is pretty cool yeah it's nice that she's kind of getting her due now as an artist and they touch upon it in the movie a little bit that a lot of that stemmed from racism and misogyny too you know people weren't ready back in the 60s and 70s for a woman who was that independent and also that out there to have really anything worthwhile to say yeah it's sad you know the Christians driven at her around that time. I mean, it didn't help both John and Yoko on that because, no, this is bad. That's one of the fascinating things about the album Approximately Infinite Universe. Last time I, I listened to it a couple weeks ago, I hadn't really paid too close attention to the lyrics, but they're very, very progressive, particularly for the early 70s. Even now, and some of what she writes about is eye-opening, but for that time period, it was really something. And um, I had read that the one track on that album, um, I Want My Love to Rest Tonight, ruffled some feathers in feminist circles because she writes about not blaming men for the troubles of women and trying to understand where men come from and giving them the benefit of the doubt and people like Gloria Steinem didn't like that very much because it went against what <laughs> some of the things they were trying to say but I think that that was very brave and pretty cool for her to sing about things like that during a time when that was very uncool I got to do my top three don't I let's yes. see mm, this is hard okay my number three is a weird choice it's from her Plastic Ono Band album it's called Greenfield Morning I Pushed an Empty Baby Carriage All Over the City that album i'd actually be interested in hearing that album just didn't really get around to it yeah it's not easy listening it's the opposite of what approximately infinite universe is it's very screamy very guttural but that particular song is all atmosphere she has like this groove that sounds almost like a trip hop beat and she's saying the title of the song very very slowly it's almost ethereal sounding but it's crunchy and it's funky and i could see it being used for like samples and like hip-hop songs and stuff like that so that's my number three Number two... It's not Cambridge 1969, is it? No, that's my number one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I guess I would go with Mrs. Lennon also. She wanted to be her own woman, not just Mrs. Lennon, so that was kind of cool. And my number one... I'm going to go with Looking Over My Hotel Window, which is the last song on Approximately Infinite Universe. Age 39 Feeling pretty suicidal The weight gets heavier when you've bled 30 years Show me your blood, John And I'll show you mine They say it's running Even when we're asleep No trace of resentment No trace of regret One blood's thinner But both look red and fresh if I ever die, please go to my daughter, tell her that she used to haunt me in my dreams. 
that's her playing the piano and it's very plaintive and she's singing about a lot of her emotional struggles as she's kind of becoming middle-aged and some of the things she's been through and it's a very very raw very emotional song good choice thank you that was tough i had more fun trying to figure out what's the top five yoko songs because mm-hmm. i originally had like this of yeah, I was going to do a top five, and then I had a top six, and then I kind of had to narrow it down to three. So <laughs> it, it had to make some tough choices. Very eclectic discography. So if you're kind of unsure, like oh, I don't know about this yet, I don't know a good track to listen to is "Move On Fast" because it's uh, oh, just pretty yeah. much a kick-ass rock number. Check that out if you're kind of like unsure about Yoko. It's a good one to pick out. her voice might not be digestible for everybody so keep that caveat in mind and i actually don't mind the the shrieking sometimes it kind of actually reminds me of a roger waters scream sometimes oh yeah so why don't we get into the film itself it's a documentary film on netflix called above us only sky which is obviously taken from the song imagine it's a pretty recent documentary and i guess it was called from some footage that yoko had found that was not previously released in any way yeah and it looks really really good yes what were your thoughts on the documentary? Did you enjoy it? Did you Were you enlightened by it? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, Imagine, I think, is my favorite John Lennon solo album. So it's really cool that the footage that you see of John in the studio was for the Imagine album. It wasn't like we got stuck with rock and roll or got stuck with some time in New York City and we got... <laughs> imagine that footage is very precious and it's cool to see and hear from all the members of the plastic ono band talking about their experience like claus vorman the bassist and alan white of yes fame hearing his his experiences is really really awesome yep and you get to see nice archival footage of george harrison who worked with john on a good number of the tracks on this album yeah that was cool to see them working together because i was never totally sure as to how their relationship was during that time yeah it's always kind of been a weird relationship relationship because it seemed like later on during the Beatles whenever they did a George Harrison track John didn't even participate on so I kind of find it weird that Harrison would be teaming up with John during the Imagine period they must have had a strong bond maybe Paul was the common enemy so they bonded over that (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a really nice companion piece to the Give Me Some Truth documentary and the Imagine film that John and Yoko made right after the release of both the Imagine album and Yoko's Fly album. I think watching those three movies together, I think, would be a really, really good experience. Now, did you watch Imagine and Give Me Some Truth? I've seen both of them a while ago. I didn't watch them now, but I have seen them. The Netflix Above Us Only Sky documentary reminded me a lot of the Give Me Some Truth documentary. I think there was a lot of similarities between the two and a lot of... um, I don't want to say overlap, but I think they covered a lot of the same territory. The Imagine film is more like a long-form music video. They have different vignettes and little music videos for certain tracks on both of those albums. And there's some cameos from some real famous people, like Dick Cavett is in it and Fred Astaire. Andy Warhol makes an appearance. They got some pretty big-name people. And it's fun to watch. I wouldn't recommend it for the casual fan, but if you're really into Lennon, I would recommend it. Is there anything from those two films that you think should have been in this new documentary? Um, I would have maybe liked to have seen a little bit more of the making of the Imagine film. I know they touched upon it briefly, but maybe some behind the scenes of that, or maybe even talking about what inspired them to do it a little bit more or maybe inspired them to make some of those choices or or some of the celebrities that they got that's a good point i think they should have talked about yoko ano's fly album because i think that was being recorded around the same time that imagine was i think it was released around the same time yeah i was thinking the exact same thing i would have liked some more info on that we know so much already about imagine and his experience making that album it would have been cool to have seen yoko's side of it because ringo plays on that album and to have seen him in the studio with her and john would have been pretty awesome too now did uh, ringo just play on the fly album not on the imagine because i don't recall ringo being on imagine right i think just alan white was on imagine but he does he he doesn't play on all of fly but he plays on a few of the tracks yeah i know jim keltner 
also pipes and drums on Imagine as well. Yeah, and he's featured in the film. Fun fact, Ted Turner from Wishbone Ash, he plays uh, steel guitar on uh, Crippled Inside as well. Okay. Another fact, too, is uh, three of the guys from Badfingers on I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. Well, they were label mates with Apple, right? Yes. It was interesting to learn about how they got involved with Phil Spector. They started the album in Tittenhurst in England, and then they just kind of up and left and moved to New York City to the... Shock and dismay of many people around them. And John never really left New York after that either. No, he didn't. He fell in love with it. I think John always liked New York City from when he uh, went there first with the Beatles. And I think he, it's his town. Yeah. He always kind of compared it to uh, Rome in the ancient times. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The footage of them doing a lot of the touristy stuff, that's fun to watch. As a documentary on a whole, I thought it was kind of mediocre. Yeah, there was kind of a lot of ground already covered. And I think that's a problem with a lot of the winning documentaries that are out there. There's nothing that really bowled me over with what anybody said outside of gushing over John Lennon and his art. I did like the Joanne Lennon interview segments on there. Yes. It was nice to hear him have something positive to say about his father. (laughs) They didn't really have the best relationship. Even when he was a small child, John just kind of saw him as a thing that was running around the house. And it's sad. I mean, it's funny because like the other episode, Tommy the Moose, we were on it's like i'm talking about bad parenting on that and it's mm-hmm. here we go again yep <laughs> something about rock stars and parenting doesn't go together so well and it, i mean you have a few exceptions though i mean oh sure 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 yeah but then even like yoko's daughter too kyoko they had a similarly troubled relationship both her and Julian were kind of the ostracized older children. And I think Julian was just another reminder to John, another one more tie to Cynthia that he just didn't want to deal with. I think he unfortunately put a lot of that on Julian himself. Yeah, just stuff like that kind of bugs me about John Lennon. And sometimes it's like, I kind of want to say, I don't really like John Lennon as a person that much because he's yeah. doing crap like that. And it's just, right. it irritates me seeing somebody especially somebody who became famous for being a troubadour for peace and love and whatnot it comes off as hypocritical when he's treating his children like dirt it's sad it's just it bugs me problem with those documentaries too it's always trying to oh john's mr peace and love and he's the greatest human being of all time and it's just i mean he wasn't that all the time i mean i bet he stood for he i mean he believed in that stuff but he did stuff also, too, that was hypocritical. and that just... I see what you're saying. It's almost as if they give him like a free pass because of his talent and more of what he stands for as an icon rather than seeing him as like a human being who has shortcomings. And I'd love to see a, a, a documentary about him that presented him with, in all his shades of gray and all his warts and all. They kind of had moments in that in the Imagine film that came out in 1988 because there's... Mm-hmm. Put it from the Imagine Sessions that's not on that Netflix. And there's a couple of moments where John's not really seeing the good light. There's one part where he's doing How Do You Sleep? And he uses the big C word in it. Oh, yes, that's right. The also, there's a moment where he's recording Oh, Yoko. And he's getting pissed off at the engineer and just... Yeah, and he starts like, of... verbally abusing him, basically. Yeah, <laughs> and I've, Craig Smith made a mention of it. <laughs> The series that they did about when and if he was the engineer, he would have walked in the studio and kicked John's ass. <laughs> John deserved it. He was really being a D-bag. <laughs> if you're in a professional setting, there's no reason for that kind of behavior, no matter how successful you are. You shouldn't be doing that. They should have had more moments like that in the documentary, just all the documentaries that they do on John. I mean, nobody is perfect. Right. The one moment where he really does kind of shine through as being a compassionate person was when that young man comes to his house who claims that he writes all his songs for him and he's you know he's clearly a troubled man and John is very gentle with him and brings him in and feeds him and everything like that that was the one time in the movie where I was like oh okay you know he he does show his heart there yeah I think John had empathy for people I mm-hmm. think just sometimes in his inner circle he could show his ass And I guess when you've reached that extreme of a celebrity, you know, it's going to affect how you react to things. It affected Paul, too. I mean, because Paul became more bossy in the Beatles when they were kind of without a leader without Brian Epstein. And it's like, oh, okay, I make all these great songs and maybe I should just kind of direct where this band's going to go. And I think John was always kind of a rebel, so he didn't really like Paul pushing him around. I don't really think Paul 
probably pushed John around. We kind of did that more with George. Paul and George had that split. John had a much stronger personality. I don't think he would have put up with that too much. Yeah, I mean, if Paul's trying to tell John how to play two of us, I think John's going to tell him to fuck off. Right, <laughs> exactly. Instead of George just saying, I'll play it the way you want. <laughs> Even though he didn't really say it that nicely. It's just more like, oh, just play what you want. Right, just tell me what you want me to do. This was the first documentary I've seen where it really was very pro-Yoko. And it gave a lot of her backstory, talked about her influence that she had on John and on music since then, which I appreciated. I was hoping I would see more of that. So it was good that this movie wasn't just dismissive of her or, or just ignored her altogether. Yeah, I, I really like that aspect of the film, too. I like the sequence where she's talking about living in wartime in Japan. That was also another really good sequence of that film because you don't really hear that mm -hmm. much about that time in Yokohana's life. Born into wealth, a pretty well-established family, and then they lost it all in the war and, you know, they had to struggle to, just to find food and it was pretty heavy. It was pretty powerful. And what other sequences stood out for you in the film? All the studio stuff was really fascinating. I love any opportunity to see any musician that's beloved working on their craft and seeing these songs come to life and how they build them from the ground up. I always dig stuff like that. Yeah. So I'm glad they had a lot of that mm -hmm. in the film. And like how they all would go to the studio for breakfast in the morning and then John would look at the clock and be like, oh, oh, you know, it's time. It's time. To, we got to get started. We, we, we don't want to waste time. And he would take, take mugs out of people's hands and, <laughs> and, and, and move them fast into the studio. It was, that was funny. <laughs> how about for you? Um, I also like them talking about how do you sleep and just how at first they thought, oh, maybe this is a song about the fans. And then they kind of listen to oh, it more. Yeah. Oh, it's about Paul. <laughs> nobody really knew that there was a, kind of a spat going on between them two. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that really started out as a spat because I know Paul had done the Ram album. And there's a couple of lyrics that might be alluding to John, might be alluding to the Beatles. But knowing the way Paul writes lyrics, it might not even be about John at all. And John Lennon was kind of always a sensitive guy. Well, not to other people, but just took things sensitively. He, he took things very personally, and, yeah. And so he kind of pretty much thought that the people pra the people preaching, practicing... So, I go again. People pre <laughs> he thought the people preaching practices... There you go. <laughs> Say that three more times I mean, fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I need to take a drink. Yeah, after that, I can imagine. Okay, so John Lennon's listening to the Ram <laughs> album, and he puts on too many people, and he notices this people preaching practicing, practices line, and he kind of pretty much thought that it's about John and Yoko doing that. And Free Legs, he thought, oh, he's going after me, George, and Ringo on that, and how, huh. like, oh, I can deal without the Beatles, and the all we can't be wrong line in backseat of my car, like, I don't know why John took that so personally, but... And then Paul's going against John. That's kind of more subtle. And John just pretty much does an officious attack saying, oh, the only good thing you done was yesterday. And since you're gone, it's another day, yeah. which was the song that Paul had released at the time. John was a lot more overt in his criticisms than Paul was. Yeah, but I think sometimes he, he was kind of going more after himself because there's some footage. I mean, there's some audio of him saying that, well, me and Paul get along fine. That song was kind of more about going after me, in mm -hmm. a sense. There was an interview later on that Paul said that he didn't, never really got angry with John about that, but he kind of did take that attack a little bit personally. John knew Paul so well that John could know how to hurt Paul. They'd known each other long enough that they knew exactly which buttons to press. They kind of reconciled not long after that because they reunited in 74 and made That's an right. album... That never really saw the light of day because it's not very good with Stevie Wonder and Harry Nielsen. I forget. It has like a weird title. It's like a toot and a snore or something. That's what it is. A toot and a snore. Yep. A toot and a snore in 74 is what it's called. I think cocaine yeah, was involved. Yeah. I think large quantities of cocaine was involved. And it's like a covers album that they did. It's, a, it's such a weird combination of people, them and Stevie Wonder. And Harry Nielsen. Is that only available on bootlegs? Uh, yes, it is. Okay. Wasn't there like murmurings that there was going to be like a possible reunion? It's kind of happened a couple of times when they were recording that Ringo album and they were mm -hmm. recording on The Greatest, which John had written for Ringo. Um, they got George to help out with guitar on that. And they were actually going to try to get Paul to play bass on there, but Paul was unavailable at the time. So they had to go with somebody else. 
there was that, you know, fame thing on Saturday Night Live where Lauren Michaels was going to try to get the Beatles to reunite and That's Paul and right. John hanging out. And they thought about going down there since the studio wasn't too far away and showing up, but they decided not to. John pretty much was off the radar once Sean was born. You know, he didn't do anything again until Double Fantasy. It probably seemed like a really long time. Oh, yeah, especially when you're putting out an album every year. Was there anything else in the in the movie that stood out for you? Um, it was a it was a pretty short film. It was only an hour and a half. It went really fast. It seemed to go fast for me, even both times I watched it. Going back to Julian, he was really talking only, you know, positive things about his father. And in all the footage that they had of him as a child at Tittenhurst, seemed like a really happy kid running around and playing with his friends and everything. You know, things seemed to be going pretty well for him. Towards the end of the documentary, it's sad when John goes to New York as Julian was kind of having time with his father again at Tittenhurst and then John's like well I'm gonna go to New York City and he kind of just did that all of a sudden because there's other people in the documentary say well I didn't really get to say goodbye to John John didn't really make an announcement about it. he just kind of went off to New York and then come back to London ever again yeah that's true like his secretary was seemed really upset by that was it in new york when they met up with phil specter phil specter met up with them in london i think john had started working with phil since february 1970 so he had been around for a while as phil produced the first album as well that's true and he did some stuff for let it be yeah paul was not very happy about that right <laughs> i don't really like phil's production on let it be either i don't, I don't really care like for it. yeah i don't really care for phil's production all that much it seems to work fine on imagine i think it's fine on plastic iron band because he didn't really do that much production actually on plastic and he just he made a couple suggestions and that was about it i preferred you know the glenn johns mix of let it be and that let it be naked version as well towards the end of the movie they start talking a lot about the song imagine i was going to ask you what are your feelings on that particular song i think it's an important song i think it's a classic song personally it's not really my cup of tea i just overheard it over these many years and it's just i mean i understand its importance but i'm not really that big of a fan of the song i was getting real tired of it by the end of the movie yeah, <laughs> I think they played it in full like maybe three times. They kept showing the same clip of them in the that white room where, as she's opening the shades and just sitting at the piano. They they kept showing that clip over and over and over again. I'm like, okay, I get I get it. We can move on now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there were some songs too that didn't really get featured in the film, like "Crippled Inside" didn't really get mentioned all that much. Um, oh my love, which well that did get mentioned because Yoko kept repeating that had a Elizabethan feeling like 20 times in that one sequence. <laughs> That's true. They didn't really talk about it, but they did feature a lot of footage of them making the song, writing the song, which was kind of cool. Yeah, and, and there was that one instance too where uh, Yoko wanted John to do a line in Japanese and John's like, oh, okay, and he just <laughs> kind of dismisses it. She wouldn't really give up on it either. No. <laughs> they did feature Happy Christmas a little bit. Yeah, uh, I'm not really a big fan of that song either. It's kind of the same with the magic. Even though mm. I don't, the message is important, uh, yeah. but it's still like, it's still not my cup of tea. They featured a number of songs that weren't on the album because between that one and also Power to the People. I'm not a big fan of that song either. Yeah, it's okay. It's not super memorable. The song God from Plastic Ono Band was also featured. I really like that song. The lyrics to that one are really very powerful. Yeah, maybe that should have been in my top three instead of Isolation. I'll just make a number four. I like Isolation because it's, it's more of a deep cut. Yeah, I do too. I found myself liking the deep cuts more than the singles. Except whatever gets you through the night and number nine dream, I can still listen to over and over. So yeah, number nine dream, I guess technically was a hit, but you never hear it on the radio or anything. Yeah, same with whatever gets you through the night, and that's funny because it was number one and it doesn't get really played on the radio. Yeah, I don't know why that is, especially with a pedigree like John Lennon and Elton John. Just radio stations play the same forty songs, and that's about it. Yeah, of all the people that they interviewed, I think the one I enjoyed listening to the most was probably. Claus Vorman. The yeah, I really like his interview segments. He seemed to have the most vivid memory of, of what happened and had the most in engaging stories. Yeah, if you check out the uh, classic albums on Plastic Enneban, his he's on there as well. And mm -hmm. his interview segments are pretty great as well. And I really like Wingo on that documentary. If you can, I would actually check out that documentary maybe over this or kind of watch them both, I guess. I guess you could do like a sequential thing where you could watch the, the Plastic Ono Band documentary first because that came first. Then maybe watch Give Me Some Truth followed by the Above Us Only Sky 
and then maybe finish off with the Imagine film. That might work. I kind of did that. I kind of did that yesterday, actually. I watched the Plastic Ono Band and then watched Above Us Only Sky, kind of just get myself freshened up with the documentary again. And then I made the mistake of watching the U.S. versus John Lennon. I've never and seen that. How have, is that? Uh, not very good. It's oh. kind of feels like a fluff piece a little bit, and it doesn't mm. really go too much onto the U.S. government trying to get John Lennon deported out of the United States. It's like only about 20 minutes of that, and then the rest is like John Lennon on politics and just kind of oh. what was going on at the time. And it's just, it's not very good. I wouldn't recommend that documentary. Yeah, it's one of those VH1 rock docs when they were trying to oh, do that. Oh, yeah, I remember, th- I remember those days. Those were- not good. It was fine. It was a relatively nondescript documentary. I, I, you know, if people are interested in in John Lennon, yeah, check it out. It's not going to blow any minds, I don't think. Yeah, I, I'm feelings are about the same as well. If you have an hour and a half to kill, it's good. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I maybe I would rather watch the Beatles anthology over any of the Lennon documentaries. Yeah, it, I think I, that's always. Good. Beatles documentary. I think we're long overdue for a good McCartney documentary. Yeah, we need one. We have the ultimate George one with living in the material world, you know, and we have lots of John ones, but we really need a McCartney one. And I'd even take a Ringo one. Ringo might be really interesting because you don't really hear a lot about Ringo, especially outside the Beatles. You don't really hear much about that part of his career. Right. And he has a pretty colorful life. He's done a lot of very interesting things. Shining Time Station. (laughs) Exhibit A, Shining Time Station. Caveman. (laughs) Yeah. That Pizza Hut ad he did with the monkeys. Oh my God, that's right. I forgot all about that. Oh, he was in Blind Man. Yep. Which is kind of like a spaghetti western. Speaking of movies, did have you ever seen John Lennon's movie? He was in How I Won the War. Um, I have not. Yeah, I have not either, and I kind of want to. Yeah, because for a while, when the Beatles stopped touring, he wasn't sure if the Beatles were going to keep going on. He thought he might make his career as an actor. So that's why he did that film. Directed by Richard Lester, who directed Help in a Hard Day's Night. It doesn't look like a great film, but I kind of want to see it just to see how John Lennon is in a part like that. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be better than Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street. Oh, Lord. <laughs> we, we should cover that. Do you want <laughs> i haven't seen that in oh my god probably 15 20 years since i've seen that movie yeah. i like the soundtrack fine i even like some of the re-recorded versions of some of his older songs i do too uh, i actually like that version of silly love songs that everyone bad mouths i don't really have a problem with any of the covers on that album well i kind of don't like that version of long and winding road very much it's to oh. Cinemaxy with the sax. <laughs> Cinemax movies. Or... Yeah. Softcore porn. Yeah, you think San and Tweed's going to show up or something. <laughs> There's a real hot take with this, but The Long and Winding Road is not one of my favorite songs in general. It's okay. I like the Beatles version, the mm-hmm. one that's not Phil Spectorized, but <laughs> yeah. after that, I could take it or leave it. It's not one of my favorites either. A little sappy for my tastes. Do you have any other thoughts or anything that you wanted to cover on the film? Not really. I would say to the listeners, watch it if you're interested, but watch the other documentaries that came before it, like the Give Me Some Truth and Imagine, because I think they do just as good of a job and maybe in some respects better. Yeah, from what you talked about, they sound a bit more interesting than this Above Us Only Sky documentary, which it's not bad, but I'd just say it's okay. It's treading old ground. It feels like just an excuse for having a vehicle to release this unreleased material. But yeah, it's fine. But I think, audience, you would serve yourself better to see the other movies and to buy some Yoko Ono albums that may have eluded you all these years. It might not be for everybody, but it's not all shrieking. It's not all Cambridge <laughs> 1969. It's not all kiss, kiss, kiss. There's some really good, enjoyable stuff if you actually just kind of sit down and willing to have a bear listen to it. I'm thinking that I should use Cambridge 1969 as our playout song. <laughs> be good. <laughs> I'm on the Twitters. Um, I'm at Michael Bagford. At Twitter, there's no underspace. It's just Michael Bagford. I do this thing where I do an album a day. Um, it's in conjunction with uh, the Rock Solid podcast show that Josh has been the co-guest on. And um, I've kind of contributed songs from time to time in liner notes to that show. Yes, um, the Genesis com- episode. Com- yep, and I have an upcoming episode that Kevin Compton's the guest on. And I do some liner notes and have some song selections as well. I think that's coming out in June. Super I'm cool. actually thinking about maybe doing a podcast, but 
I still need Ooh. to think about what topic it's going to be and who I'm going to do it with. Yeah. So that, that might be in the future. This is a Movies at Rock exclusive. You're hearing it first. That's <laughs> awesome. Follow him on Twitter and um, keep an eye out for some possible upcoming projects, which is really exciting. And you can follow me at the podcast Twitter at Rock Movies Pod. You can send me an email at movies at rockpod at gmail.com if you have anything you want to share with Mike and I. If you, if you disagree with any of our assessments on John and Yoko, please let us know. Leave us a review, positive or negative is fine. Either way, it will help people find the show. Thank you so much for taking some time out on this warm evening, Memorial Day weekend, to talk about the Beatles and John Lennon. That's always fun to do this. Take care, Mike. Thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Right. Bye. sky